You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All righty, everybody. It's game time. Here we go again with another podcast. Welcome back to all of you, each and every one of you. Thanks for tuning in. Today's podcast, we're going to be talking with Greg Kraus. He is a whitetail freak, just like the rest of us. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about homemade coolers, believe it or not, a a place to hang your deer, um, and how he uses a pole saw to be very efficient preseason and uh, hanging, not necessarily hanging tree stands, but kind of a methodology that he approaches to uh, trimming out uh, different uh, hunting locations. But before I, we get to that, I just want to say, if you haven't already, go sign up and become a member of the National Deer Alliance. It is free of charge and... Um, it's worth your while. I mean, you're going to become educated and and the National Deer Alliance is doing a lot to help support hunters uh, throughout the entire nation, especially mule deer and whitetail hunters. So go sign up for that. Uh, keep this intro fairly short. I want you guys to pay attention to the end of this podcast because I'm going to be announcing the winner of the Ozonics and... Let's see. I think that's it. But before we get into today's podcast, let's hear from John Livingston of Deer Lab about what Deer Lab is. That's a great question, Dan. Uh, Deer Lab is a web-based service that helps you manage and analyze your trail camera photos. We work with any trail camera. It doesn't matter what kind of trail camera you have. Um, You upload your photos to our service. As long as it has a timestamp, we can work with it. And so we basically go in and pull weather data from your local weather station and give you additional information that trail cameras can't capture. We also aggregate all of the data together. So you know when and where this particular buck is moving, uh, how he's moving by wind direction and wind speed. Uh, There's a lot of different reports that we can provide, but we basically are trying to simplify the process instead of having to manually understand what he's doing. We automate a lot of that information. 
Alrighty, if you want to find out more information about Deer Lab, please go visit DeerLab.com. And uh, for the Nine Finger Chronicles listeners only, go to DeerLab.com slash Nine Fingers. And by signing up there, you will get a free 30-day trial period. And uh, as you guys get closer to the uh, opening day, I think it's a really good opportunity for you to uh, take advantage of that trial period, dump as many trail camera pictures in as possible, and uh, maybe get uh, an opportunity at a buck that you've been chasing for several years, uh, try to find his patterns and whatnot. But... You can't do it unless you go visit nine or uh, I'm all over the place. Deerlab.com slash nine fingers. But now let's get into today's BS session with Greg Krause. All right. On the phone with me tonight is Greg Krause. How you doing today, Greg? Pretty good. How are you? I can't complain, man. Uh, I tell you what, uh, it's Sunday when we're recording this, and I had an absolute blast of a weekend, uh, just like a real laid-back weekend with the family, did some fishing, did a bonfire. We had our um, wild game feed this weekend at the house, so we ate turkey and deer and fish that we caught, and um, this year wasn't as crazy as last year's as far as species that we ended up eating. Uh, We had some frog legs uh, that we caught out of the pond as well. But uh, just a really fun uh, annual tradition that we started. That's awesome. My daughter is uh, three, and she's been eating venison like crazy now and telling everybody that that's her favorite food. That's awesome. You've raised her well. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. My wife's a vegetarian, too, so that's pretty remarkable. Your wife is a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, she... Starting, uh, she was raised a vegetarian, so she's always been a vegetarian. Okay. She helps me hang stands. She helps me drag deer. She helps me butcher and wrap deer, but she doesn't eat it. So is that, and I'm going to ask you, why is that? Is it because of a, a, a diet? I take it she's married to you, so she's she's okay with the hunting and the killing portion of it, but just doesn't decide to eat meat because, I mean, be, just because she was raised that way? Yeah, she was raised that way, never ate meat, just never really, you know, had a urge to eat it after being raised that way. Um, and then she also felt that if she was going to eat meat, she felt like she wanted to take part in the process and actually hunt or kill, but she doesn't think she could do that. Okay. So she was like, if I'm not going to kill it, then I shouldn't really eat it. Okay. That's hardcore, man. So, um yeah does and i'm sorry to elaborate on this topic but it's always interesting you know it's like you got a hardcore hunter like yourself who is married to a vegetarian um have you ever gotten her to at least try it just like a very small bite um i think i think she'll eat i think she tried alligator once yeah um it was sort of in between real meat and fish she'll eat fish right so we catch if we catch fish like we go striper fishing Right. She'll the fish, if she catches them, she'll we'll cook them up. Uh, but venison, you know, turkey, things like that, she hasn't tried. Okay. All right. Now, as a hunter, do you are you, are you continuously asking her, or is it just like you know what? If she wants to be a vegetarian, she can be a vegetarian. I don't care. I don't care. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, if that's what she wants, as long as it's 
as long as it doesn't affect, like, you know, how I can act. You know, if I couldn't bring you in the house, if I couldn't cook it in the kitchen, it would be a problem. But, right. I mean, heck, yeah, we, we, you know, for years I butchered, you know, all the quarters on our kitchen counter. And right. No problem. Right. So. Okay. Well, that's cool, man. Um, and so whereabouts, right, where do you live and what do you do for a living? Um, I live in Westchester County, New York. It's uh, maybe 45 minutes an hour north of New York City. Okay. And I I work as a, a custodian for the local school district. Okay. So you I are... The, I, I specifically took the job because it's a second shift job. So I, before I had kids, I hunted every single day of the yeah. season for three months. That's nice. why I took the job. So it it allows you to hunt the the mornings uh, during the week, yeah. and then the weekends are, are free game. Then, absolutely cool. So, New York, you're in, you're 45 minutes north of New York City. Um, so when when someone says New York City, all I hear is someplace completely opposite of where I currently live, right? In farm country, Iowa. Um, you know, we got gravel roads, we got, you know, all these things that are almost polar opposites as far as, you know, population wise and who lives in these areas, so to speak. So, you know, in, in that area, you know, even 45 minutes north of New York City, I take it is a pretty heavy, heavy populated area. Is that correct? Yeah, the the immediate area I live in is um, it's pretty nice because uh, a lot of the people here have uh, a decent amount of money, so there's uh, quite a bit of, of open woods. Um, most properties, the houses aren't stacked on each other. A lot of people own 10, 20, 30 acres um, in some of these areas, right. and uh, it's not like it's not like you're thinking where it's like tight, tight, okay, uh, super suburban, okay. But but there so there there's a little bit of more there's less parcel um, there's bigger parcels to hunt so to speak. It's bigger parcels overall. Um, I mean they're still small by most standards, but it's not like you're hunting really tight packed neighborhoods. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so then, so then, what kind of properties do you hunt out there? Uh, what's the terrain like? Um, talk to us about uh, if you're hunting public ground, if you're hunting uh, knock on door private, or do you own some property yourself? So the terrain here is pretty unique. It's all almost a hundred percent hardwood um, forest. Okay. Um, it the terrain itself, it's it's pretty it's pretty rugged. It really, uh, the glaciers have sort of stopped right here. So there's some pretty big um, glacial deposit rocks, so okay. there's cliffs. There's a lot of terrain, a lot of terrain to hunt, a lot of benches, funnels, saddles, that kind of thing, a lot of that. Okay. Um, and so- then for the property we actually hunt, mostly it's knock-on-door private um, and ranging from three acres of huntable up to maybe 60, 70 acres. Okay. Yeah. So then so there's some actual public land um, that the New York City DEP owns. Uh, it's res- it's around their reservoirs that supply the drinking water for New York City, and uh, some of those are, are are just flat out open to the public, 
you know, get your reservoir permit online, print it out, and you can go hunt there. Gotcha. Gotcha. So where do you spend most of your time? Most of my time is between knock on door private and then, um, and we'll talk about it a little more later. There's semi-public parcels that have opened up that are either privately owned by um, different organizations or towns, counties, that sort of thing, own property that they've been opening up for hunting programs. So I spend a lot of time in those properties as well. Okay. Yeah. And we're definitely going to get into that uh, towards the end of this podcast. So the reason that, uh, I mean, you sent me an email a while back and, uh, or a message through Facebook said, Hey man, I'd like, I'd like to come on your podcast and talk about this management program, but I also got some other cool things that I'd like to talk about. And the, the thing that I found really interesting is two things that you mentioned. One, we're going to talk about how much work you can do with a pole saw. But first, I want to talk about this cooler, this deer cooler that you made. Um, I think you and a friend, right? Or you and someone kind of yeah. took a took um, took it upon yourself to make a walk-in cooler. So I think that's going to be a really great uh, uh, place to start. So I'm just going to kind of let you take it from here and talk to us about this cooler that you built. All right. So over the past few years, it's been frustrating, you know, uh, November, December, it's been hot. We can't hang deer. We're rushing to process them. And with the kind of hunting we do here, a lot of it is, um, a lot of doe harvesting to try to get the populations under control. So we end up shooting quite a few deer, um, and to send it to the processor, you know, you spend $95 and they, you know, sort of do an okay job at, at butchering wrapping. We were frustrated. So um, we stumbled across, a, you know, just Google searching walking coolers. Uh, there's a little computer you can buy. It's called a CoolBot. Yeah. And it just sort of tricks your a window air conditioner into running really cold without freezing up if you have it in an insulated room. So we we decided to build an it's I think it's seven by seven by eight interior dimensions. Um, walk-in cooler. It's using a 10,000 BTU uh, window AC unit and this little cool bot. And it, um, we can, we can hang meat now. We can get it down. I, I ran it for four months straight at 37 degrees. Wow. So talk yeah. to us about the, like the building process of this, because you built it from scratch, correct? So outside of the yeah, air, we, outside of the air conditioner and this cool bot program that you put in an air conditioner, what else went into the actual construction of this? So the coolest thing about this, this little cool bot and, and using an air conditioner is you can buy most of this stuff on Craigslist. You can use your imagination of how you want to build it or, or what you want to build it with. It just has to be about R26 insulation. Um, or, or a little better, the better insulated you, you have it, the colder you can run it. Um, so we did some research and we found a place that was selling factory second, uh, four inch thick, um, sheets of rigid insulation, um, full four foot by eight foot sheets. So we knew that would be our, our insulation. So we built a a frame out of, uh, two by sixes and insulated it with this uh, rigid insulation and uh, and sort of went from there. We built it in, in panels, 
So it's six panels that we could take apart with clips. So if we wanted to, we could load it on a trailer and move it, uh, take it apart and move it somewhere. And uh, we ended up, we didn't have a freestanding building to put it in. So it was going to, it was going to be its own building. So we ended up uh, sheathing it with galvanized sheet metal that uh, my buddy was able to get um, through a supply house. It's used for uh, duct work in big industrial places. So uh, we just built, you know, we got, we scavenged uh, an outside like cellar door yeah. for the doorway and we ended up building it for, I don't know, all said and done, I think maybe 1200 bucks. 1200 bucks. And what's so, the square footage of it? It's seven foot by seven foot inside, eight foot tall. Okay. I think that's about it. So it's, we hang, I can hang six deer in there comfortably with a table and two of us cutting. Oh, nice. So, I mean, if you just used it for hanging deer, you could probably cram 15 deer in there, maybe even more. Wow. Um, wow. So you could, if you, you know, we through this building this, we talked to different people and, you know, this guy over here was able to find at the junkyard an old uh, refrigerator box off of a truck that sold seafood. So he was able to just take the box at the junkyard for a few hundred bucks and then fix it up a little bit, but it was the big insulated box off the truck, slap the AC in it and call it done. Um, another guy found an RV place that was going out of business um, and had insulated panels there. Uh, sometimes at auction you can find a walk-in cooler that uh, – doesn't have the, the refrigeration unit and that's the expensive part so you can buy sometimes a walk-in cooler cheap and just put this unit on it and uh and it works really nice so do you like to dry age your deer then uh like for a while before you end up packaging it i mean does it does that allow you to to do that now so originally it was just a, we wanted it for a matter of convenience we were like, you know what, let's just get it. You know, we get a deer down, we can we can hang it in there and we'll butcher it in two days or the next day or whatever. We're not we're not racing the clock with the high temperatures. So that was the original plan. While we started planning this, I started um, listening to more podcasts. Uh, I know uh, Hank Shaw that you you talked with him. Yep. I think either on this podcast on and I know on uh, Wired to Hunt. So a couple different things. We started reading some better cookbooks and, and learning more about meat preparation. And then we're like, you know what? With a cooler, we can dry age. Right. So that's what we did this year. Our deer, um, I think uh, three of us used it this year. I think we ran 12, uh, somewhere around 12 deer through it. And we had deer, the minimum they were aged, I think this year was 14 days. And some of them were up to 30. Wow. Dry age. And uh, it made a huge difference. Really? So a huge difference. So you've already take you've already consumed some of the deer that you've dry aged for uh what's so different about the just the overall taste and the quality of the meat after dry aging compared to, you know, killing it, wrapping it, getting it in the freezer. So uh you know, from what I've read, the science behind it is, you know, first and foremost, let the let the deer come out of rigor mortis before you, you butcher it and that sort of should be a little more tender anyway so right. we have plenty of time to do that by being able to hang it um but the meat the consistency everything about it it's more tender it's more delicate it's a much darker meat it looks like if you take a piece of venison and a piece of beef and lay them side by side you, i mean 
you can see from across the room, you know which one's the beef, you know which one's the venison. When you dry age the venison and lay it next to a piece of beef, it looks very similar. Okay. Um, the color, it's a much darker, richer color. And, I mean, you could take a, a cut off a roast on the back, and and if you butterflied it, you could you could convince someone it's a back strap. Really? Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So not only does, you know, it's convenient, it's better from a quality you know, quality of meat standpoint as well. Now that you're able to do this dry age thing. Absolutely. I cooked up some venison for father's day and my mother, she's a good sport. She's always helped cook it or, and she'll eat it when we cook it. And, um, we were over there and I cooked it up and, and she turned and said, you know, she was like, I have to say you should have done this walking cooler years ago. Yeah. I don't have to wonder if I'm going to like the venison anymore when you cook it up. Because awesome. every once in a while you get a piece that's a little tougher, a little a little stronger, you know, just a different cut or just the age of the deer or whatever it was. Right. But we haven't had – I mean, we've, we had a few uh, – I think we had an eight-and-a-half-year-old doe this year we aged. And, you know, we also had some year-and-a-half-old does that we aged. And, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the two at the end of it. Right. That's awesome. Now, yeah. the, the big question for me is, all right, you got it built right it works great but how much money does it cost you to run that air conditioning let's say on a month did you notice a, a jump in your electrical bill no it's it's almost nothing we the, when we built it we finally got it finished i think uh just before deer season opened so it had to be mid-september we, we had it finished and it was 75 degrees out or so and we plugged it in and we got it to temperature and we wanted to see now the fan for the air conditioner runs all the time. Yeah. So it keeps the air circulating, but that doesn't use much energy. The compressor is what will use the energy. And when it was in the sun in mid seventies, uh, we had the inside down to 37 and the compressor would only kick on, uh, for like two minute intervals and like a total of 10 minutes for every hour. Okay. So, the compressor is running maybe 10 minutes an hour. That's if you figure that's a fraction of what it would cost to run an air conditioner in your house. Right. I mean, it was, it wasn't really even noticeable. Right. So then, um, this, uh, this, this cooler then does, do you have it full and running all year round or like right now you don't have any deer aging in it. So, are you is it is it off and open so you know no nothing grows inside of it do you did you have to clean it once deer season was over and you're done aging it how did what about the sanitary uh uh like points of it so my we weren't sure what we wanted to line it with to make it easy to clean but uh my buddy had some tyvek left over from a job he was doing on his house yeah so that's like the vapor barrier mm-hmm um, so we lined it with Tyvek so we could wipe it down easily. And our rule is um, the deer is always skinned before it goes in. We okay. never put a deer in there with hair on it. We actually built a skinning pole right out front uh, that rotates into the door. So you can, by yourself, you can sort of swing the deer into the cooler and then, and then lift it up onto the, onto the hooks we have there. Oh, nice. Um, so we always bring it in clean. Uh, we always have a head, uh, bucket for its head while it's hanging to make sure we don't get a lot of extra blood. And then we have... Um, like bleach solution in the spray bottles. Everything gets wiped down all the time. So we try to keep it really clean right. um, throughout the season. End of the season, we gave it a really good wash down. 
um, with some bleach and water. And then I'll leave the door open on the days it's cool and dry. I have a dehumidifier in there that I'll turn on once in a while. You know, I'll just monitor. It's right in the yard. I'll monitor. You know, once a week I'll walk out there. It feels like it's getting damp in there. And then I'll open the door and turn the dehumidifier on. Gotcha. But we'll use it for, you know, if we have a party, we'll plug it in and it'll cool down within 45 minutes. So you can put beer and hot dogs and hamburgers or, you know, whatever you got. If you don't have room in the inside fridge, you can put it right in there on the table. And it take you said, 45 minutes to get down to temperature in there. Yeah, about 45 minutes to get it down to like 37 degrees. And then you can set it for whatever you want down to about 34. Um, but, I mean, if you wanted to run it at 60, you could run it at 60, depending. Yeah. You know, florists use them. Uh, you know, you can adjust. A lot of people are using this for different different applications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's awesome, man. So is this something that you think like anybody who is killing more than one or two deer a season should really consider or look into building their own cooler? I think anybody who shoots a single deer a season yeah. should look into building one. Now you could build one, you know, if you could, if you weren't in a rush and you sort of just kept your eyes open on Craigslist and looked for free stuff and, cheap stuff you could put one together for about 500 bucks i think probably a four by four by eight so you could walk in there and hang two or three deer in there um i think you could put one together you know for for 500 or less yeah your biggest expense up front would be the would be the the cool bot controller is about 325 dollars um but you know any digital air conditioner works so i i bought one for 70 bucks on craigslist um yeah, I think it makes a difference. I mean, if you shoot a lot of deer, it makes sense. If you're going to pr- try to process it yourself, it makes sense. But if you shoot one deer a year and you want to maximize, you know, the quality of that meat, hanging it is, is really the way to go. Right. Right. And, and and you keep it at about 37 degrees, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I monitored humidity. Uh, we stayed pretty good, right around 70% or so, which I guess is about right. Um, you could run a dehumidifier in there. Um, you'd have to make sure you had a big enough air conditioner to offset the heat if you wanted to get it drier. Right. Uh, if for some reason you were doing something you wanted wetter, uh, you can hang like a damp rag in the corner to bring the humidity up so you can control it that way. Gotcha. But, um, meat, I guess, dry aged beef, they do right around 37. Okay. Right around 70% humidity. So that's what we went for. We followed the USDA stuff on the, on the, on dry aged beef. Awesome. Awesome. And you just keep it in your backyard or side yard or um, whereabouts yeah, on your property to use next, it? It's, it's, tucked, it's tucked in next to a shed just in the backyard. Um, you know, I was going to originally build it in the little shed I had because it would have been even cheaper for us to do it. If you could build it in the corner of a garage inside or in a shed, but it wasn't going to be as tall as I wanted. I wanted to be able to hang the full deer in there and the shed I had just wasn't tall enough. Right. Cool. Cool. Man, I tell you what, that's something that kind of sparked my attention when you started talking about this because I have about a oh a six foot by eight foot section in my garage that just has you know like a little extra junk hanging hanging around in it that if I got rid of and cleaned out I could easily uh put a you know build some kind of cooler you know it's just talking the wife into it and telling her hey i'm going to spend 1200 bucks on a on a deer cooler <laughs> I, I you know what i'll i'll send you i'll freeze and overnight you some aged venison and let her try it <laughs> and then she'll let you 
she'll tell you to build a cooler. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Um, but no, I mean, and the thing is, you know, like you got to think, just use your imagination. Um, we talked to one guy who had a friend that did spray foam insulation for houses. houses yeah. And apparently when they're doing those jobs, there's some, uh, the chemicals they mix in the tank to make the spray foam, there's often some left that they end up getting rid of. So if you could build it in frames and show up at a job site, they would charge you for it, but it'd be much less than if you paid, you know, someone to come spray it. You can get right. it for a fraction of the price. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could get it insulated and, and some of them really cheap. Right. Man, that's interesting. That's pretty cool. All right. Now we're going to move on to the next little thing that uh, you mentioned, and that was using a pole saw and not necessarily any pole saw, but like a really long one. Um, uh, so first off, why a pole saw? Tell me a little bit about why you messaged me and said, Hey man, I, 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 I think a pole saw is an, un, like an underestimated tool when it comes to the, the hunter. Um, so the way, uh, my hunting partner and I, there's, there's really three of us. Uh, the one guy who helped me build a cooler, we've been hunting together, uh, since we were 14. So, um, we hunt very similar styles. Most of the places we hunt, we cannot leave stands up overnight. Okay. Um, it's has to be run and gun. Um, and a lot of times, a lot of times we usually use lone wolf climbers. We both have sticks and stands. Um, hang on lone wolves that we use but usually the trees here are pretty straight and we can get away with the climbers right which uh is just as, just as quiet and, and, and a little quicker for us um just less stuff to rattle around in the woods so we used to drag our stands through the woods all summer climbing individual trees and trying to prep them out with hand saws and like a little pole saw and it just it takes so much more time right so last last summer i did a little research and uh i would i searched out the biggest best pole saw i could find and uh the steel makes a a pole saw that's a, a professional pole saw it's uh, a lot of tree companies apparently use them right and it arborists. wasn't cheap but yeah arborists yeah it wasn't cheap but um it it changed what we could do and, and the ease in which we could do it for sure um it's the steel PP 800 and it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't cheap. It was 140 bucks just for the pole and another 95 for the pruner head. So it wasn't, it's not, it's an investment. Um, so 250. Yeah. About 250 bucks. Um, yeah. Give or take about 250 bucks. I can tell you right now that $250 for a professional grade pole saw is uh, yeah. in, in in the arborist community, I'm not talking about the hunting community, but in an arborist community yeah. is middle of the road to uh, at yeah. best. I mean, there's, there's pole saws out there that can go up to $300, $400. Oh yeah, absolutely. And this one, what's nice about this is it's telescopic. So you're not lugging, um, you know, individual poles through the woods, which right. you used to do. So this is, it, it telescopes out without the head on it. Uh, I think it's 18 foot, six inches, just the pole. Um, and it collapses to seven feet. Oh, nice. So when I put the head on, so it's seven foot, so it's a little big to carry around, but it's not unwieldy. 
um, I take the head off and I stick it in my little day pack I use for when I'm, when I'm prepping. Right. So the head with the rope stays in the pack. I'm not tripping over the rope. And uh, with the head on it, uh, I can reach about 26 feet to prune. So I can walk up to a tree and prune branches off the tree up until my stand height. I rarely go above 26. I'm usually right in that. And, and once I get up there during the year, I can always prune it out a little bit with a handsaw then. But I can also trim out all my shooting lanes. I can walk out to the trails, look back, and prune everything that's in the way. Right. So I don't have to bring my stand in to prep it. I can just walk in with the pole saw while I'm scouting, find a tree, mark it on my GPS, and then and then prune it out, and then just keep moving. And I know I'll, I may never come back to that tree. Last year I, pre- I prepped close to, I think, 80 trees last year I prepped. I think I wow. did 20 of them. I think wow. I hunted 20 of them, but they're there and they're on my GPS. So if the wind is right or I see a pattern or I think deer are using that particular bench or whatever, whatever it is, I can hunt. I can run and gun every day in a different tree if I want. And the tree is already prepped. I don't yeah. have to worry about where to go or hoping I can get there and prep it out. I can slip in there and slip up the tree and be ready to go. You know, that's really cool because that is a, a really efficient way to to scout. Now, I mean, do you know that you're going to go in there and do some tree trimming uh, when you do these scouting missions? Because carrying something that's, you know, really long in there with you, yeah. because, even, even if it's, it's seven foot, is still kind of a – a son of a gun, if, especially if you're walking through uh, some thicker, some thicker like bushes yeah. and terrain. We don't have a lot of thicker areas, and um, yeah, I mean it could be a pain. It's it's. I'm looking here. I looked it up. It's 4.7 pounds, so it's not extremely heavy. So it's not too bad to carry. Right. Um, I throw it over my shoulder, and I just walk in like you're carrying uh, your oars when you're going to use your rifle. Yeah. Um, if if I'm shed hunting, I don't really try to. I do. I sort of scout when I'm shed hunting, but if I'm shed hunting, I'm shed hunting. Right. I can't look at the trees and look for sheds at the same time. Yeah. I, I pay attention to places to, to scout. I won't bring it then. If I know I'm going in and I'm like, you know what, this area on the map, this maybe 50-acre or 80-acre block I'm looking into looks really good on the map, um, I'm going to bring the pole saw with me. I'm going to go in there specifically scouting, knowing that I'm probably going to at least want one you know, or, or more trees in that area. So I'll, I'll bring it with me when I go. Right. But it's still easier than trying to carry a backpack and a stand and a step and, uh, you know, a hand saw and maybe, uh, you know, I had it for a while and I still use during the season. I have a shorter, uh, Fiskars pole saw. Yep. Uh, it's much lighter. It's much shorter. I use that during the season. Sometimes if I have to, uh, run and gun like while, you know, set up and, and hunt the same day. Right. For sure. Um, but for preseason, I just I know I'm going to prep some trees today, and I bring the saw with me. Right. We can really knock it out. We can knock out a lot of trees really fast. So what's that mean for you? You know, you you said you knock you you go out you you trim a ton of trees before the season even starts. What's that do for you? What's the benefit of doing that? I know there's an obvious benefit, but what's the benefit of you doing that? So that when it's game time, you know, right when you leave your truck, you know, you know what? Well, I have, so uh, one of the main areas I hunt is, uh, is, is a lot, a very large piece of property. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those semi-public places. There's a bunch of other guys that hunt there. 
but I have a full, uh, a huge map we printed out, and I look at that, and I can uh, sort of, I have my stands marked on there, and, and I go through that. So I can look at any given area where I know should be good for that day in the weather conditions, and I can find the trees I have prepped in that area. So a couple things. One is, uh, just on a stealth standpoint, if I know I want to get in that area, um, I can get in there. I know I can get in there and hunt uh, quickly and easily. Now, maybe that tree turns out to not be the best tree, but I can always adjust from there and do a true run and gun from that spot and move in a little closer to, to, to fine tune if I need to. Right. Um, the, and that it just helps being able to go in in the dark, find a tree instantly, and be up it with no fussing, no messing around. Right. Um, the, the main thing it does, though, besides that, is it keeps me from getting complacent. Because too many times, you know, you've been hunting a lot of days in a row, you're grinding it out, and you know you should be over in this area, but you don't have a tree prepped, you never really walked through there, you don't know what you're going to do, and it's real easy to not go to that area and, and go somewhere easier that you've already been hunting. Right. So by having, by having, I have no excuses to not go into the area I should be in if I have trees prepped. Right, right. So now a lot of people wouldn't be doing this, right? A lot of people would say, wow, man, I just don't have, I don't, I don't have time to go and trim 80 tree stands uh, before the season uh, starts. What would you say to that person? Uh, nobody has the time. Yeah. I mean, really, like, you know, I have, I have two little kids at home. It's crazy this year. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, five hours behind what I want to do. But uh, having this saw makes it so when I do get a little bit of time, I can maximize it. Right. I can run in there, and instead of going in and just picking out a tree or two, I can maximize my time. And then that maximizes my time during the deer season when I get some time to hunt. I'm not wondering where I should be or screwing around trying to find out what tree to be in. I have it all set up. So, right. You know, I try to get it done as early as I can. And really, like a lot of times I'm doing it in February, in March, when there's not a lot going on. I'm right. in there looking at old sign and, and, and prepping trees already for the following year. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Now, um, do you ever run into a scenario where you are, you know, you've, you've gone into a tree, you've done the work, let's say, the month previous or two months or three months previous or how, whenever, however many months earlier. And there's either regrowth or a branch has fallen down in front. And, um, you know, you're like one or two of your shooting lanes are, are no longer there because of movement in the timber. Um, do you bring an additional saw with you every time or is it just kind of a uh, tough shit? Make it work. Um, a little bit of both. Um, I carry, I always carry a small folding handsaw, not a, not a pole saw. So I always carry that. So if it's something nearby, I can reach it. I always have my bow rope, which is a paracord. And I've thrown that over branches before to sort of pull them out of the way and tie them back sometimes Yeah. Uh, in a pinch. Um, but the way I look at it is, yeah, a branch. I've never had three or four shooting lanes. You know, maybe a part of a shooting lane or one shooting lane is covered up. Um, but I'm still... Uh, a hell of a lot better off than I was if I hadn't pruned anything out of that tree. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm also, I go, so I go in so early, I tend to make my shooting lanes pretty big. Um, it's fairly open timber where we're at. Uh, so I 
it's not real thick. I'm not doing a lot of pruning, but I try to make my shooting lanes. I try to have at least one in every direction uh, and, and make them wide enough that, you know, you have a little bit of wiggle room if a branch grows in or if the deer doesn't quite stop, you know, give you the right shot. You know, you don't miss out on, a, on an opportunity. Right, right. Yeah, man, that's that's something that is, to me, simple, right? A lot of people ask, man, what can I do to be more successful in the timber? And I think as, you know, as this podcast evolves and as we as hunters evolve, the answer is time spent prepping, whether that is trail cameras or whether that is trimming out shooting lanes or whatever, but tasks and activities that happen outside of the actual hunting season. So that what what you're explaining kind of for me for me is a no-brainer. You know, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be doing some some preseason work and not only have I seen it work for me in the past, but you know, f- for someone who doesn't do that you listen to someone like yourself or like me or other people who I'm not going to say, I, I, I don't like using the term whether or not we've been successful in the timber, but it's, it's just, if you're hardcore and you want to, and you're asking yourself, what can you do to be better? Uh, the answer is it's pretty simple for me. Yeah. Anything you can do, um, you know, in the preseason to prepare yourself, whether it's, you know, whether it's in the timber, trimming lanes, hanging cameras, we can't use cameras um, on a lot of the properties that I hunt. It's just there's a set of rules um, uh, that are implemented by, by the properties. Right. Um, so I don't have that option to run cameras on most of the places I hunt. Right. So I can't be sitting cameras and checking them. So my thing is I'm going to advance myself with shooting, you know, prepping shooting lanes. But, you know, whether it's go out in the yard five minutes every day and shoot three arrows yeah. You know, do something in the off season to help yourself during the season. So when crunch time comes, you know, you're better prepared. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, uh, so what I do is with the, with the, you know, I have a lot of trees, some trees I, I haven't ever hunted. Some maybe not in a year or two. And I'll often check them in the off season if I can, but not always. So what we do is I have a GPS and I mark every single tree, um, on the GPS. And then in the notes section, generally uh what wind i'll hunt it with or a quick description of it so i know what it is might be uh downwinds doe bedding west wind something like that so i'll know when and where to hunt it and then uh i bought these little uh, they're like the bright eye tacks but yep. they're the brown ones and they they suck but they're great because um they're not bright you have to be within a few feet of them to see them and that's perfect because i don't want you know, other people hunt this property. I don't want them to see my bright eyes from 50 or hundred yards off. Right. Um, these, I get with the GPS, they'll get me within a few feet, you know, 10, 15 feet, depending on, on cloud cover and what, you know, how, however well it's working, but uh, it gets me close enough that I might not have been at that tree in two years, but I'll shine my light around. I can catch, I can catch one of those tacks and it's not real bright. So it's not attracting attention, but I'll be able to find it when I'm looking for it. And then I go up the tree. Right, man. That's crazy. That's awesome. Well, sounds like uh, you're a prepper, like most of us are, and that's uh, um, worked out for you in the uh, in the past. And uh, it sounds like something that's gonna you're gonna continually do. But the big topic that I want to talk about is this 
this management, this deer management type of thing that uh, it's not necessarily an organization. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to stop talking and I'm going to just put it on you. And I want you to tell me and the listeners this, what you actually contacted me about and how well you see this deer management thing working out on the East coast where you're from. All right. Um, so in the areas I live in, uh, in Northern Connecticut, especially, uh, I'm right along the line. Um, we've been, uh, we've had a lot of deer, like a, a severe overpopulation. At one point, the estimates were over 60 deer per square mile. Jeez. And this, yeah. And the state recommends we have no ag, so it's just whatever's in the woods. So they're destroying the understory, the deer. So the state would like it, which is lower than most of us want to see it. But the state wants 10 deer per square mile, and we're at 60, or we're at 60. Man. So the towns, the counties, um, there's a few private organizations that, um, uh, like, get donations, conservation organizations that get donations of green space. Uh, So open lots that weren't built on and different donations, different pieces of property all these people that are trying to maintain these, these, these forests, uh, you know, they didn't know what to do. So for a while they looked at a couple companies that would come in at night with uh, night vision scopes and bait piles and suppressors and thin the deer that way. And it, it wasn't very popular and it was really, you know, in the general public didn't like that. Right. And it was expensive. I think they were getting $500 a deer to kill them. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so it was costing the taxpayers a lot of money, and nobody was really happy with it. Aside so, from that, I'm going to interrupt real quick. Aside from yeah. that, what what was unpopular about it? Just the method of some guys wearing black yeah. with high-powered, you know, suppressed yeah. shooting these? Well, that was kind of the yeah. what was frowned upon? Well, yeah, I mean, I think some of it is, you know, the area I'm in is... Uh, there's not, there's more hunters than people realize, but the general population are, a lot of them are transplants from New York City. A lot of them have not been around hunting. So just killing deer in general, I don't think was all that popular, but especially going in, you know, sort of uh, unfairly, you know, bait yeah. piles at night, right. you know, dropping piles of deer with suppressors, you know, it just, it was unpopular. It didn't seem, uh, I don't know, ethical, I guess, to most people. I mean, right. it's efficient, but it, it just didn't, it, most people it didn't sit well with. The right. hunters didn't like it because it was taking opportunities from them. And the non-hunting public, uh, even if they were in support of hunting, weren't in support of this. Right. Uh, on top of the financial aspect. You know, when someone rolls up and they say, well, yeah, okay, that cost you $35,000 this week. You know, that's a lot of taxpayer money to shoot deer. Right. So they did a lot of research and... Um, they, a few of the towns it started with started, um, deer management programs, which it started here on town owned properties. The towns were organized like a deer committee and they came up with different ideas and they finally went, uh, they brought in bow hunters to reduce the population, um, focus on doe harvests and, uh, all the different, you know, a few different towns here are doing it. Uh, one of the counties is doing it. Uh, as I said, some of the private organizations are doing it, and they all have slightly different rules, but the main aspect is bringing qualified bow hunters uh, 
hunting them from tree stands and focused on doe harvest. Yeah. And it's it's been wildly successful. So is it is it just doe harvest then? Um, nobody can hunt bucks. So every program has slightly different rules. Uh, all of them allow buck harvest. Um, you know, they, they were smart enough to realize that, you know, guys, even if they're doing it to reduce does and all the good things, they're having fun. Um, you know, you don't want to have a big buck walk by and not have the opportunity on it. So right. some of them were, you know, earn a buck, you had to shoot a doe first. Some right. of them may have been, you know, we'll get you, you know, uh, maybe three does in a buck. Some of them, you know, you could shoot a buck if it was over a certain size, you know, and, and then you owed them a doe. Uh, you know, it, they all have different, you know, different rules, but you could, all of them, you could harvest a buck at some point. Right. Um, you know, mostly you went out and you tried to shoot does, uh, you know, get one or two down off the bat. And then, you know, as, as you went, you could still hunt does, but you know, as a rut rolled in, you could, you could pay a little more attention to where you're hunting for bucks as well. Right. Awesome. All right. So then, uh, was this something that was brought to the communities? You know, obviously there was a group of people who said, Hey man, we got to brainstorm and come up with how to reduce the numbers, um, and maybe make some money off of this as well. Uh, was it brought to the communities, um, as a vote or to community representatives that went back to the community and said, listen, we have a problem with deer. You guys don't like the sharpshooter method. Um, what about having regular hunters come in on your properties and, and hunt? Yeah, so it, um, the town owned ones, uh, basically all of them, there's at least a town board, an organization board, a county board, and they were all voted on it. Um, there, there was different, um, meetings with comments. I'm not sure the general public ever really voted on it. Um, but, but they, you know, they were, uh, there was open sessions for comments and discussion about it. And originally it wasn't all that popular. Everybody was expecting to see deer running around you know, dying in their lawns, arrows in them. They just, you know, they were expecting the horror story that right. bull hunters often get a bad rap for, which is not true. Yeah. So they set a set of rules that are sort of standard for this area, which is you have to hunt from a tree stand okay. for a, a safety perspective. All shots are going to be in the ground, even a missed shot. Yep. Um, all, all of them have some form of qualification. The, the two main ones I'm involved with now, I've run a small one, and I'm involved with a, a county-wide one. Um, it's, we have to shoot, the hunters have to shoot uh, three out of four arrows in a six-inch circle at 30 yards. Okay. So it's not incredibly difficult, but you'd be surprised at how many people it weeds out. It weeds out a very large percentage. The people who aren't taking archery seriously and bow hunting seriously. Right. So there's an efficiency way. test, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that made people a little more, uh, they were willing to, let's, let's try it. Right. And then it just worked. It really worked. Um, you know, near the, the county I live in, in New York here, we, uh, we basically have unlimited doe tags. Uh, we used to get up to eight buck tags and unlimited doe tags. And it was crazy. And now we're down to two buck tags, unlimited does. So they didn't have to pull any strings to let us shoot more antlerless deer. We already had the tags for them. Um, they were able to get more from the count or from the state if needed, but they didn't have to. Right, right. Um, locally, we have a, a 
I'm not, I think it's a hunters for the hungry. I'm not sure the actual name of it, but it's a program here where you can donate your deer at the butcher's butcher shop. You drop it off and sign it over and it gets processed to go to soup kitchens and help feed the needy in the area. Right. So, so I mean, all these are wins. Yeah, it's a win-win. I mean, it's just, it's just, and it doesn't cost anyone anything. The hunters pay usually a minimum fee, uh, uh, an office filing fee, 25 bucks, 30 bucks, something like that. So it, doesn't, it gives hunters access to a big area for, for, you know, little money. And it doesn't cost these organizations or the towns anything. Right. It so actually makes them least, somewhat of a profit. Yeah. I mean, at least, it at least covers, you know, their, their operating expenses for the most part. And um, the public has really decided they like it. Overall, there's been very little very little controversy about it it's been efficient there hasn't been these horror stories everyone feared and you know a lot of deer are you know we're seeing forest regeneration so we're actually getting um these saplings and seedlings to start growing for years there was no new growth in the forest because the deer were so uh the populations were so high right so it's it's helping the environment it's putting food you know any any extra deer that don't go to the hunters families or friends gets donated to these uh soup kitchens for the needy um it's just a win-win for everybody right this is awesome that uh you know you're involved with something like this because just i would guess a hundred miles away from you um i don't know if it's a hundred miles or not but uh, i think i heard on long island they were live capturing male deer and neutering them and then releasing them back into wild, thinking that that is going to reduce the population because they captured yeah. 50% of the bucks. Yeah, it was down in Staten Island. And Staten Island, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a big joke. It, uh, you know, the, the DEC, uh, they're going with what the city wanted, and they sort of, the DEC came out and said it was sort of, you know, a ridiculous thing to do, but they would help facilitate however it needed to be done, how the city was going to do it. But we here just above the city, we have, you know, programs that have been in the works for, you know, seven, eight, nine years now. I think the longest one's 11 years it's been running. And, uh, and they're, they're working. They're super efficient, they're super effective, and they're absolutely working. So, you know, they had a model they could have, they could have drawn from here, and they decided uh, to not deal with the controversy of it and do that, which is going to cost a lot of money, and it's not going to be nearly as effective. Wow, that is crazy. Now, my question about efficiency is, you know, big bait piles with at night can bring in a big, a lot of deer, right? I don't care where you're at. Uh, once yeah. a deer find out where they're at and uh, you can uh, get a sharpshooter in there, right? You said they were pretty efficient, and I have a feeling that they, they could do that. They could be fairly efficient. How efficient are the actual hunters in reaching that goal of eliminating the, the right amount of deer, I guess, first off, is it, is this program working from a overall numbers standpoint? I know you mentioned there's some forest uh, regrowth and so that tells me it's kind of working, but from an overall numbers uh, perspective, is it, uh, is it working as well as uh, like the, the sharpshooter method? Yeah, it's probably in the long run. I mean, it's it's the longer way to get there for sure. But in the long run, it's probably more more effective. Um, yeah. Only because uh, you know these guys are getting paid a lot of money. 
uh, for their time and the deer they harvest and everything else. They're not going to, you know, they're going to get the easy ones that come out right away and, and over the course of a week or a couple of days, and they're going to do a great job. But some of these properties are huge, and you're just not going to get a lot of deer. So unless you keep bringing them back in over and over again, it's not going to make the difference. Right. You know, the deer population, you know, if you do it one year and then skip a year or two, it's going to be right back to where it was. Right. So this is a long-term solution, and it's been working really well. They're not focused on numbers so much because nobody really knows now what our population is per square mile. There's not like a cost-effective, super-efficient way to find out. Right. So most places are judging it on uh, deer impact on the vegetation. Gotcha. So basically they're, they're, they're setting up specific sites where they measure um, uh, browse on certain species of trees and saplings and see if, if we're gaining you know, if we're growing trees and we are. So right. it's definitely, it's, it's working. Awesome. Um, yeah. And, you know, for numbers wise, uh, the, we found across the board, 10%, 10 to 15% of the hunters are going to take between 75 and 85 to maybe even 90% of the deer. Hands down. Always. Okay. I don't care if you have five hunters in there or 105 hunters in there. Um, there's always going to be a top tier of guys that are more efficient at doing it for right. whatever the reason may be. Um, but so some, you know, we always say if, you know, if everyone could go in and take one deer, we'd be happy. Right. And that usually keeps us sort of, and you know, we're, we're meeting our harvest goals. Right. So introducing a, a program like this into an otherwise maybe not, like hunter sympathy, right? You know, like we sympathize with hunters. We don't, we're, we ourselves are not going to be hunters, but we're going to allow hunting in our community because we feel that it is the best way to control the deer population. Once your program starts rocking and rolling, does it also help in hunter recruitment and allow others to be introduced into hunting and take part in it? It can. It opens up more properties to hunt. Okay. So we have some of our some of the best hunters we've hunted with actually um, started out their very first hunting season in these programs. Right. And it was actually really great for them because they got to sort of meet up with and and hang out with and and pick the brains of guys who were who are you know experienced hunters and getting it done more so than just going with like your one buddy's father, or your, you know, whatever it is. Right. Instead of having one or two people in the same group you're sort of hanging out with, you could, you know, you know, in theory talk to, you know, a dozen or two dozen people that were being successful. And, and guys would sort of figure out who had what strategy and what was working. And, and a lot of guys sort of tagged along with certain guys and picked their brains. Right. So it opens up the property. And as long as they can pass the proficiency test in the beginning, um, you know, and whatever requirements are throughout the throughout for each program, uh, it's a good end to get more property. Right. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, so you're getting more people to say, okay, I see this working. I like what, what this is all about. Um, I'd like to enroll my property into this program as well. So some of the towns have like a list of hunters that have passed the proficiency test and then uh, individual private landowners could call that number and get the list of you know, names and, and sort of pair up with a quote-unquote qualified hunter. Right. Um, 
other than that, it's been more of these like organizations and and townships and government sort of properties. Gotcha. Um, it hasn't been individual properties, but because it's sort of mainstream here now, right? I'm finding more more uh, you know general people who own private property are open to the idea of bow hunting. Some of them now are you know more than open to it. They're excited to possibly have somebody you know to help the environment and have somebody come hunt on their property. Awesome. Now, some of the hunters don't like these programs because there's hoops to jump through. You have to qualify. Most of them you have to call a, a call-in number and a call-out number every time you're going to go in and hunt and every time you leave. Um, quite a few of them have some sort of mapping system set up, like a kiosks at certain spots with a, a map where you have a pin and you'll pin in where you're going to hunt. It's so they can keep track of where people are and what's going. And it, it's supposed to help keep hunters from accidentally you know, hunting in, on the same spot. Right. You know, if you see someone there, you go somewhere somewhere else. Right. A lot of guys don't want to deal with all that, so they don't. It's not for everybody. It's a little bit of extra work, but once you get used to it, it's it's you know you don't even think about it. Right. Which I mean, like you mentioned, what's the alternative at that point? <laughs> right. No hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can hunt on some little private property. That's great, and that's what we always did. But like the one place I spend a lot of my time is five thousand acres. Right. So I'm going from hunting two and three acre woodlots to now have access to five thousand acres. Yeah. You know, if I have to jump through a few hoops to do it, it's it's a no brainer to do it. Right. Right. So, so the program works, right? I mean, in your in your honest opinion, the program works, right? Absolutely. I mean, more than my opinion. I mean, there's scientific data on the people who are collecting it here that it it, it is working hands down. Right. Okay. So that should be, you know, are you guys then taking that, that data that has been collecting and sharing it with other communities that in the past maybe either don't have a program like what you're doing or rejected hunting in their communities? Absolutely. Um, one of, uh, one of my good friends that I do a lot of hunting with, he runs, um, one of the major programs that's here and he's done a lot of work with, uh, communities. I mean, all across, I'm not sure. I mean, even out to Ohio, I think you talk to, you know, he's, you know, talked to people, answered questions, uh, gone to meetings, promoted it. Uh, you know, if somebody calls him and, and needs some advice on something, you know, he'll get it. And, you know, we try to, you know, help show the results of what's working. I think any area that has, you had someone on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago that was a similar kind of thing that opened up some urban areas or suburban areas um for hunting i don't know if it was it was on private property but it was sort of to open up these suburban areas um anyone that has lives in an area with a deer population problem you know they should reach out and find these different programs and and figure out how to start one in their community because it's a win-win for everybody now that you've got this program it's successful. Have you had anybody try to stick their nose in this, uh, in these programs? Like, uh, and I, I don't know why this first, the first group of people that comes to mind is politicians and lawmakers saying, okay, well we need to charge more money for these tags or we need to charge these hunters more to, you know, to, to actually get more money to go into their community, whether it's for schools or libraries or wherever, basically get more money out of it. No, I think most people are happy that, uh, it seems most of the politicians are happy that this is going so well for them. It's not costing them money. 
right. before this problem. They didn't have a solution, and the ones you know they sort of did, but it was cost prohibitive. Right. So everyone seems to be pretty happy with how it's running, and like pushback from people that are against it. It's very in in this area it has become fairly common for these programs. The pushback really isn't there. Right. And you know most most of the stuff from you know animal rights type people or or whatever else to find out about it. You know it's coming from somewhere you know hundreds or thousands of miles away. Right. It's not it's not the people in the community. Right. Right. So. Do you ever, you know, you said that some of these programs have been around seven years, right? Yeah. Now, one, 11 is the longest one. So is there any, do you get any pushback from new people coming into the community or, you know, there's always, there's, and I would take it that there's more of these people, cl- the closer to New York City that you get, the, you know, the people who are like, I am 100% get, you know, percent against all hunting. I'm against all harming animals. I'm, you know, you know, the, the, the crazy ones. It happens. I mean, um, we, I know on one of the boards on one of these programs, the one woman was like, I don't believe in hunting in any form, but you know, this is what everyone is saying needs to be done to help, you know, help for the forest, for the environment. I mean, uh, it's not just the trees. I mean, the, the bottom line is, you know, without the understory, we were losing songbirds. Yep. We were losing ground nesting birds. I mean, so we have uh, people from all walks of life that are on our side now that awesome. normally they might be bird watchers that would never want to see something hunted, but they're seeing a particular bird they haven't seen in 35 years and they've seen it back in their yard. They're excited. Awesome. That's, that's, uh, that's a good way to look at it. So where do programs like this go from where they're at now? I mean, how do you tweak them to make them better? Um, I mean, is there is there any tweaking that needs to be done, or is it just to to stay consistent to be effective? I think every year there's a little tweaking. You know, everyone's trying to find out the, the right balance. Do we want more hunters in general in each program to make it more efficient, or do we want to make maybe make the requirements a little tougher and have a few less hunters? You know, which one were you know, but, but maybe the, those fewer hunters are a little. Uh, better at getting the job done. Right. You know, so it, it's always a balance. You know, everyone's trying to tweak a little bit of this and a little bit of that to find out what the ideal balance is. You know, we always say, yes, you know, it's it's great that it's a, a hunting opportunity for people, but it, that's not what it's about. You know, it's about the about you know the actual deer harvests and getting the numbers where they should be. Some people in the area are pissed that are hunters. They think the numbers are too low as it is. Um, you know, when I first started hunting, it was nothing to see 30 deer in the timber. You know, right. and this is a spot where we have no ag. This is going through neighborhoods into the timber. You know, it was nothing to see 30 deer in a, in a sit. We're not seeing that anymore, but we're seeing, uh, you know, as a hunter, we're seeing a shorter rut, uh, which used to last from mid-October through February. Um, so now we're seeing a much more, I mean, it still goes on uh, pretty late, but we're seeing a much heavier, like classic rutting. Um, going on in November so that's awesome you're seeing less deer but uh, you're seeing the bucks you're seeing are generally better older right. older age class uh, there's more food for all the deer with, with less deer being on the landscape so we're seeing healthier fawns we're seeing uh, bucks um, growing better antlers um, you know it's, it's, just, it's been uh, you know you're not seeing the numbers that you maybe saw years ago but uh, that's the point of it 
we're seeing absolutely. healthier deer herd, which is awesome. Absolutely. You know, so, so now, but, so now the question is, you know, we've talked about the environmental part of it, but now let's talk about that inner hunter. You know, we all want to see the big bucks. We all want to see, um, is, you know, when people say, Hey man, I, New York, man, that hunting's garbage there. There's way too many people. There's way too much pressure. Uh, you know, we got scenarios like you, uh, or you're, you're where it's overpopulated, but you got to, you've implemented yeah. this program. You've helped reshape the landscape as far as deer are concerned. What's the, talk a little bit more about the antlers and, you know, you, you mentioned age class, um, are, are other hunters starting to take notice in this for, for the antler benefits alone? I think so. I mean, in my general area, you can get a pretty decent rack buck here and there. Um, but age class you can get right right now. We're starting to see slight gains in actual antlers, you know, inches of antler. I've killed, just to give you an idea of, of inches versus age class, where in the particular areas I'm hunting, now it changes across New York in different places for sure. But in the particular places I'm hunting, I think I've killed seven bucks over five and a half wow. in the last 12 or so years, 15 years. But the biggest buck was 124 inches. Yeah. So there's been this big gap where we can get the age, but we haven't got the haven't got the antler growth and i think i think we have the genetics i think some of it's food on the ground while they're growing i think some of it um uh, i think you were part of a podcast where there was a, a guy down south talking about it was actually mattered how healthy the doe was before she gave birth to the buck fawn right and that sort of influenced um antler growth for the rest of their their lives yep so i think some of that is what we're seeing now um so yeah i mean we're and we killed some really, really old bucks um, over the years, but uh, just not anything, you know, no, no giants here. Right. Uh, some people do. There are, you know, you can catch a 140, 150 here and there. Just a, three years ago, I was on one of these properties, and I almost had a shot at a really nice buck, and I knew he was going to go about 140, I figured. And uh, I just, it was a little too far. There was a little too much brush. I couldn't take the shot. My father had the week off. Now, my father has hunted for I don't know how many years, since he was a kid, and he had never shot a buck over 80 inches. Yeah. And he was always saying, maybe one day I'd, I'd get one. So, uh, yeah, I think it was three years ago, I said, Dad, I said, there's a big buck on that property. And I said, he's moving over to the property right next door. I said, you should get in there. And two days later, I said, get in that stand. And he went down there and he shot it. And he made a perfect hard shot on it at 20 yards. And uh, it's like 152 inches. Yeah. That's so, crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, you know. So we're seeing we're seeing some big bucks, you know. But I mean, that's that's sort of a giant uh, for the area. Oh, absolutely. You know, in, in the one fifties. Right. And how old was but, that buck? Um, four and a half. Four and a half. Right. So definitely genetics. Yeah. I mean, in that particular area, man, genetics are there. One hundred and fifty class four yeah, year old. Just, you know, is a is, you know, next year that buck gets yeah. bigger. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we. Uh, We've been seeing some really nice bucks, and we can get the age class. So now it's just getting, I think, the nutrition and, and, and the overall herd health to really start to see the antlers growing. Right. Uh, the past couple of years, we've seen some really nice bucks. We've seen more bucks in the one mid-120s um, to 130s than we've seen in a long time. Right. So that's fun. I, one question that kind of popped into my head was, in, in some of these 
in this area that you hunt, in the program that you're uh, connected with, is anybody, I mean, if there's 50 people who sign up for it, are 50 people getting in if they can pass the efficiency test and, and, and do everything? I mean, what's the pressure like in some of the areas that you hunt, especially in the programs? Uh, is there only so many people allowed in this area per, per day per hunt, or is it kind of a free-for-all? It's sort of program dependent. Um, for the most part, if you sign up, you're going to get in. Uh, in the first few years, we had such an over uh, overwhelming turnout for a couple of the programs that if you passed your proficiency test, it went into a lottery. So you might have 130 people that showed up and passed, but they might only take 100 people in the program. Right. So, um, you know, so you might not get in. Most people did. Uh, other programs, it's like there's you know, three dozen parking spots there, you know, you pass the test. If you can park in one of those spots, if you want to put five of your buddies in the car with you, whatever it is, you guys have these, these spots to park, you know, don't park anywhere else. If it's all filled up, I guess you're out of luck. Yeah. Um, so some of the properties, as I said, the one, the one property hunts 5,000 acres and there's a couple additional properties throughout the, throughout the area that, um, are included in that program and i think there's usually about 100 hunters that hunt it so generally it's not really pressured um because of some of the rules on where you can enter and how you can get in it it gets tough to get away from them sometimes and last year my average hike was a mile and a half to my stands yeah for the most part um i mean you to, to get away from the guys you had to either get far away or find some really wonky place up close that everybody overlooked we've had a lot of luck doing that too Um, another program I'm in is 250 acres and there's about a hundred guys that have permission to hunt that. That place is (laughs) Right. Right. But, but that's a place that like, again, you gotta just be smart. I found, I killed a a six and a half year old buck. He was a six pointer that scores like 124 inches and six pointer. Um, he was 242 pounds. He was just a monster, an old, old deer that was living in a swamp right next to the parking lot. Yeah, and I found a faint trail that had huge hoof prints in it, and we were able to set up on it. So you you can find spots that people overlook. Absolutely, um, even on the heavy pressured spots. So, you know, the deer the deer get smart. They either go far or they hide in places they're not being bothered. Right, makes but, sense. You know, makes the first sense. year we started doing these on these properties, these properties had never been hunted at least legally. So the deer were pretty naive, and and it was. Uh, it was pretty easy the first year, but by the second year, the deer, they were just, they knew, they knew the game. It was just yeah. like hunting anywhere else. They right. knew what was going on and, and they didn't play around. I mean, the does here, you know, we still have does that are, you know, eight, nine, ten years old sometimes. And they are the smartest deer out there. I don't care. They're, they're the ones you have to worry about picking you off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they've been through seven, seven of these deer seasons. They've seen them all. And if they're still around, then then they they know the game yeah that's awesome that's awesome that uh you know i think i think what you're doing you know what you're doing is is so cool because not only does it introduce you know it gives hunters more options where to hunt it also is a great you know you're you're acting as a liaison between hunters and non-hunters and in in the outcome is in a positive light, and that's something that is definitely needed when communicating to non-hunters, right? 
Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's been a big change here. I mean, as I said, we're close to the city. A lot of the people have come from the city. And when they first got here, they were, you know, don't shoot my deer. Yeah. You know, they're so pretty. Uh, and they finally came to realize something needed to be done. And I mean, I did some projects this year where we were measuring, um, you know, browse damage from deer with a couple of people from the Audubon Society yeah. that were staunch non-hunters. They weren't quite anti, but they were never really pro-hunting. But we were working side by side for the same cause, and they were, you know, they were acknowledging that the reason we were getting the results we were seeing is because of the hunters, and they were, right. they were happy about that. Right, right. Man, that's so cool. Well, I tell you what, man, I I really appreciate you taking time uh, to not only you know. Uh, spearhead one of these uh, programs but uh, come on the podcast and, and share information on it that's uh, so cool yeah no problem and there you have it another podcast in the books huge shout out to Greg for coming on and uh, sharing some secrets with us and and talking uh, some deer hunting with us we really appreciate that huge shout out to each and every one of you for coming on the podcast and downloading it and listening to it and all that jazz. And uh, now I just want to announce the winner of the Ozonics giveaway. And that is Nicholas Garris. It's G E R A C E. I, uh, I messaged you through Facebook. So the winner of the Ozonics is Nicholas Garris out of uh, Louisiana. So uh, you have 48 hours from this point uh, to reach out to me, or I'm going to have to find a- another winner. So there's the winner of that. Now, huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast bighorn outfitters lone wolf tree stands ozonics gearhead wasp exodus trail cameras and ripcord archery and deer lab so huge shout out to all those guys as well because without their support i'm not here i'm uh, working another part-time job somewhere else and i'd rather be doing this any day of the week so thank you thank you thank you And uh, guys, if you haven't already, go leave a review on iTunes. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What else, what else, what else? I think that's it. If you're going to be out in the woods, hanging tree stands, or doing something, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.